Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, and today we're speaking with Rob the Baron Miller of Amoebics and Tau Cross, a sword maker, a bassist, a singer, man of parts. Rob, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. <laughs> Earl, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm loving, loving your blog, and thanks for allowing me into that, because um, always here to learn. Before talking about the new Tau Cross album, I wanted to talk about the old days and how you took the trajectory you took, because people who know your music know you came up through, uh, well, they probably know you came, you started out on Dartmoor, which is a very good place to start. I commend you for that. That was a good choice. And then you moved into the sort of DIY punk scene, late 70s, early 80s, and uh, were in this band Amoebics, which um, many a crusty punk is very fond of. But there's strong esoteric influence on the music. And it'd be cool to kind of get a genealogy of that to some extent. So how did you start getting into all that stuff? When we first started out as a band, we were literally just uh, trying to emulate the ideas from fanzines like Sniffing Glue, where they said, this is punk rock and all you need to do is learn three chords and play them and that's you set up as a band. So we'd do that and we were just idiot kids playing around the local village halls and uh, having fun, doing it for fun really. Um, I got a, got a job being a part-time journalist for the local paper writing reviews on bands that would come in and out of Plymouth nearby. So that's how I met Crass. And they uh, they took on board our first little demo, which was me and my brother up in my bedroom, um, hitting a bicycle seat and then uh, with an H&H bass um, amp and, a, and, and a, uh, a vocal mic. So we made our first awful demo. Crass took that one on. They put it out as Bullshit Detector, the first. But um, after that, we met up with the, the quite extraordinary uh, drummer, Martin Baker, whose parents lived in an old Glebe manor house on the edge of Dartmoor. And they would, they'd gone away to live in their London flat for the winter. And he invited us to come and stay in this place, which was uh, situated in old, on an old Saxon burial mound, uh, absolutely st- steaming with atmosphere, weirdness around there, steeped in, in, uh, in darkness and uh, all that kind of stuff you're fascinated with as a, as a kid. So things began to take on a a much deeper and more profound sense for us. Um, we became involved in, uh, in living a different lifestyle to start with, where, whereby we would, um, we would sleep during the day and we would practice during the night and we would imbibe like you do when you're a young person. You don't necessarily have to carry on with that, but it can be an important part of the initiatory process, I suppose. Um, so we, we did have a different outlook that was just waiting to find its voice as such. And that was formed, I think, at a, at a much later date, partic- sorry, a much earlier date, particularly with myself and my brother, Stig, uh, because we grew up in a family that had always talked to one another, been interested in occult subjects, really. My hmm. father kept his own library and we i mean i don't know whether you remember in the 70s it was i mean the funny thing enough people think that the 60s was the big um was the big mystical era and stuff like that for the 70s for me there was a lot going on you know you had things like yuri geller you had um the the whole von daniken um thing blew up so there was barely a household without von daniken somewhere yuri geller as i say that was extraordinary it's like so mainstream that everybody was trying to bend spoons and get involved with this um psi kind of like yeah. <laughs> experimentation and there were, you know, the books. There was, there was the View of Atlantis. You had Ravenscroft. You had all this, all this kind of stuff that was available to us as kids who had this natural um, curiosity, and obviously the ability to be able to get yourself into to trouble fairly quickly when you're young too. So 
we had an upbringing that was informed and steeped in conversation and access to uh, literature mm. um, at, you know, at a fairly basic level. I mean, nothing, nothing particularly academic, but stuff which at least got us uh, initially started and interested in, in that particular line of inquiry. And for myself, again, the, the one the, in, within the anarcho-punk scene, no, there wasn't anybody that was uh, doing the kind of thing that we were doing at all. But we were taking on different influences along the way. So we were listening to early metal, you know, Sabbath and things like that, in this context of like <laughs> sleeping during the day, waking at night, and getting ourselves into a completely different headspace, um, using different methods to do that. Uh, reading whatever we could, getting equally confused as anything else, but then also coming across bands who had a serious uh, impact, which were particularly people like Killing Joke, um, who you knew that these guys had dabbled. I wasn't sure how concretized really their their vision was as such. I think that they were like us, kind of like dabbling in in a few different ideas. But I mean, Jazz Coleman certainly is, seems to have gone out there, but I think it's the more profound person in the group is actually uh, Paul Ferguson, the drummer, and he writes the lyrics. So there's a little John Michelle on the bookshelf, Fondanik in the kind of 70s popular esoteric stuff Yeah, is around. Your family yeah. are kind of into this stuff as well when you guys are coming up. Yeah, very much. Um, my father in particular was uh, very vocal against organized religion uh, and he encouraged us to be able to look into alternative ideas uh, and he, he's still like that I mean he's 86 years old now and uh, yes he's got a weird and wonderful bookshelf uh, and he always encouraged in our family this old idea of we all sat down we'd eat together and even when we were we were spiky head, smelly, crusty kids growing up and difficult to deal with. We still had that kind of space where we could meet and we could eat and we could argue and we could shout at one another, but we would have meaningful dialogue. And that that was such a central part of my understanding of, of, of argument and debate. Uh, it was from that familiar, familial perspective, how important it was to be able to work things out. Even if you have great differences, sometimes you learn. Mm. Uh, you learn from somebody else's opinions. And that's, you know, I've, I've maintained that throughout my life. So these guys seem, it seems like your folks were pretty good parents for young punk rockers, really, because they they were like, okay, maybe we don't understand your choice of hairstyle and stuff like that, but let's go, you know. Let's, let's kind of, I mean, with they, it. They, 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 I mean, they weren't trippy-dippy hippie at all. My father's very, very regimented. Um, he, he, he had a, a gun shop when we were growing up, so I grew up around arms and uh, the whole military kind of stuff, and I was destined to go into the RAF. So it was, it was a, um, a strict upbringing to a degree. It certainly wasn't any of this like wild child hippie nonsense. Yeah. Um, they were much more serious about, about their approach to life. But there were some esoteric ideas there. Mm-hmm. And, and an yeah, idea very of much. questioning mainstream religion, which obviously comes through in all your music. Now, at some point, I guess maybe this is when you moved into the, the Glebe house, you start to get exposed to kind of what you might call more hardcore British occultism. So there's some Crowley in there, and there's um, the famous Spare picture. So there's Amoebix is known. I mean, I first came across the name Amoebix literally from the grubby patches sewn onto people's crust punk uh, regalia. And mm-hmm. it would always either be Amoebix or the face. The, the splathead. The splathead, yeah. 
which is this crazy uh, face. People can check out the images associated with this uh, blog to get to get the original picture by Austin Osmond Spare. How did you come across that? It's an interesting story. Um, because the first time I actually came across that was through a fanzine, believe it or not. And, and there was an illustration in the middle of this fanzine. I think the I think the interview was around Poison Girls at the time, but it was just the it was whoever put together the fanzine had taken that picture and they had set it into this this background, which was kind of like the, the Garden of Eden sort of thing, you know, with a little snake and stuff there as well. And um, the subtext on it was et in Arcadia ego. Uh, which they translated as even in Arcadia, I death reign supreme. And I thought that's a powerful thing there, you know. Um, and then the next the next time that um, we came across it was we went, when we went down to the Witchcraft Museum in Boss Castle in Cornwall. And I don't know whether it was actually the original there. I think it was, but it was only kind of small. Uh, and it was there um, and looking at this thing in full color and going, yeah, that's a very, very powerful image. And then learning a little bit more about it. And you can correct me whether I'm wrong on this, but the, the folklore around it, goes that uh, a lot of um, uh, Spare's friends and, and, and contemporaries were very cynical about his um, activity in the occult and stuff. So they wanted some kind of like demonstration from him that, uh, that he had some sort of powers. And uh, this, this thing was supposed to have appeared out of the corner of the room in, and it's kind of like in a smoky vision that came out to the people there in the audience and went, oh dear, he's pretty serious. So that's what he drew down, the vampires are coming. That's the story I, that I heard. I don't know whether that's true or not. Lovely but I will also... Anyway. Yeah, it's a lovely bit of folklore, if it's true. If not, it's a nice story. But there's another addendum to this, too. It's like, um, you know the band Venom? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, black metal Venom. So, I mean, they, they, I'm sure they're lovely lads and they're a good laugh and all that kind of stuff. But I knew as soon as I heard them that, that these they're ridiculous. Silly lyrics and, you know, at war with Satan and stuff. And it's like... So I wrote to them when I got hold of their first single, which was um, Evil in League with Satan. And it was just so rubbish. It's like, Evil in League with Satan. It's like, oh, okay, great. This is really, really funny. So I thought, I've got to write to them and congratulate them on making this humorous record. So I wrote back and I got this really fucking, pardon me, pardon the language. I got this really rude uh, letter back from Abaddon and we will rip you off. And I was, I was wondering what he was talking about then. And of course he didn't rip us off because we'd already ripped this thing off. But then you find that on the Black Metal album, you have their version of the spare thing, which is somebody crudely drawn this kind of like goat's head. And now, and I've seen in an interview with with um, uh, with Kronos since then, oh yeah, definitely we got that from Austin. Yeah, yeah, sure you did. I think they they were excited by seeing the first Amoebics records that I sent up to them, and they they went, that's a powerful image, and they in turn took it on too. They just don't want to talk about that. So we, we all stole, as, as we always have done. Yeah, there you go. Venom haven't aged well, but I think at the time they were extru- they were pushing the, the edge of what you could get away with, weren't they? You know, like... like ah, yeah. But We no. loved Venom, but but I, I never took them seriously. You know, it's one of those things. Uh, you, you can't, you know? Um, yeah. We knew we knew that there was a humorous side to it, but you couldn't deny that they had brilliant, raw, dirty old sound. So I enjoyed them. Um, but um, no, they weren't they weren't high on the influence um, stakes at all. That's really interesting. That that anecdote about getting this spare picture from a, a zine. The the zine culture of the seventies, eighties, nineties is just now coming under scholarly scrutiny, and people are trying to trace some of these lines but it's so difficult because it's all just people photocopying photocopies of photocopies of photocopies and repackaging stuff and it's this kind of uh, really really complicated conversation going on fascinating mm-hmm. stuff now but that original image came from that magazine series didn't it 
you know, the, the collectible magazine. It's all the, the occult series of magazines. Ah, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue now. One of your listeners will point that one out, which was absolutely brilliant uh, and very, very comprehensive set of magazines. So it's, it's it's the cover image of one of those. We'll find it. The whole collection now is worth a considerable amount of money. And for people back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, uh, an invaluable resource of original pictures and, and articles and all the rest of it. Hmm. Hugely influential, I think. So we've traced that image. And if we want to trace the esoteric in amoebics as a scholar of uh, esotericism. I, I would look at the first two albums and go, lots of imagery, a lot of what you might call kind of pagan thought or, you know, kind of like a, a pagan approach to things. But it's with the third album, and there's some singles in there as well. There's a lot of like, but you didn't mm-hmm. do split split singles, did you? But no, you did, no, no. You put out a couple no. single, a couple, couple seven couple inches. EPs. Yeah. We put a seven inch out, then we put a, uh, an EP and then we put a, a, a 12 inch EP, which was the No Sanctuary. Yeah. And that was all, that was in a particular period where you can hear there's a very big difference between that and, and Arise. So when the Arise album comes out, you get, a, you get a different sound, you get an absolutely different approach to the music altogether too. But then Amoebics breaks up and then comes back together in the 21st century for one album, Sonic Mass. And Sonic Mass is, again, a step change in a lot of ways. Certainly, the production is miles ahead of the the earlier stuff. Although punks mm-hmm. are gonna punks are gonna be nostalgic for the old the old Amoebics production, and um, esoteric themes come to the fore. Right. So Sonic Mass, you have the song "The Messenger," which is just alchemy, really, really strong alchemical stuff. There's the song "The One," which is some late Platonist metaphysics brought into punk rock and mm-hmm. a bunch of other stuff, which has got, yeah, kind of reaching into, I would say, English folklore and landscape and stuff like this. And then that new incarnation of Amoebics broke up and Tal Cross was formed. You And then we've now got the third Tal Cross album about to come out. And Tal Cross has just been fully embracing, it seems to me, a lot of esoteric currents from day one. So let's talk about that stuff in in light of the third album, which is soon to drop. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So the the reason, well, one of the reasons that um, that Sonic Mass is a lot more focused than perhaps the the previous ones, which were broadly speaking pagan landscapes, ideas about personal empowerment, um, mythological motifs, uh, and images. Uh, that I, I've always used anyway. I've, I've always been very particular about seeding lyrics with um, with images that that can be um, what, what's the name? It's like numinous Im- images that they can, that can re- relate relate straight away to something within the unconscious of the individual. So I'm trying to make stuff. It, it sounds a bit pretentious, but trying to create landscapes that people can can uh, delve into whilst they're listening to a, a piece of music. So the difference between arise a monolith and their nativistic kind of paganism and Sonic Mass was me leaving, leaving Devon, Somerset, um, disappearing up here to an island off the west coast of Scotland in 1991 under um, under difficult circumstances and starting off a life afresh here altogether. So I cut every single tie that I had pretty much, you know, we didn't, this is before the internet, obviously there was still, <laughs> you had telephones and people would write to one another and stuff, but I, I had no, um, I had no strings attaching me to that scene anymore at all. So I'd cut loose of that. And my, 
life changed its direction altogether. I got involved with some people who were actively engaged in groups, should we put it that way, or a group of people working in the environment. Um, and I also, along that line of inquiry, started to pick up enthusiasm for reading, reading people like Jung on Alchemy, first of all, and then delving things, into things and then reaching, reading Yeats about sort of Neoplatonism and this kind of stuff. So it, I, my, um, my curiosity was really piqued and it has been ever since then, really. So I've just been trying to nibble away at the edges of, of um, any work that I can in order to be able to get a, a better view. So I'm still on the journey. Mm. When you look at Tao Cross, the three albums, how much, how much continuity do you see and how much change, how much evolution do you see? You mean between that and Amoebics or Tau Cross no, as a separate Cross is thing? a separate thing. I'm kind of like stuck with that a little bit because this, for me, the, the second album, I really like it and there's good songs on there, but I feel it was a little bit rushed. So I can't, I can't um, connect with it so well as I can the first album and this, this later one. For some reason, I can't quite plug into it in the same way. And that may be because we had a mix, uh, more of a mix of writers there. So we had um, John and Andy much more involved and bringing stuff across that I had to kind of like lyric, lyrically um, manage after that. It's different. The first album is purely my own work, which was me going crazy for a year and a half after Amoebics blew up in our faces and trying to deal with that anger and loss, really, because it wasn't a very good ending, and tr rationalising it, but also the, the one thing that I've always done, which has been very, very determined, and I thought, I'm not being buried by this at all. So I came out with stuff like Lazarus, and it's like there's just this image of I'm not having this. I am I am going to succeed in, in, in what I'm doing now because I've still got things to say. So the first album was extraordinarily willful. And I think you'll also find that this album, because of the other circumstances, <laughs> it's like I've died several times in bands. And this, this one, again, is my reaction um, at a visceral level to other things whilst also simultaneously trying to trying to articulate my own particular vision at this time as well. Mm. This album, like a quick review from my perspective, which I've had the delightful opportunity of previewing the new album. And I would say people who dig Tao Cross up till now are going to dig this album. It's, it's more of the same in a good sense, if, you, if that makes sense. But mm -hmm. there's some guitar shredding on here. Like that's never occurred in a uh, Rob Miller release before. You've actually got some, I mean, you've, you've almost going into thrash <laughs> territory on a couple of these numbers, you know? Yeah. Um, love it. Yeah, me too. I'm a, I'm a great lover of the, of the thrash. And you bring in for the first time Gnosticism in a big way, which we can talk mm -hmm. about in a minute, maybe. Let me just read what you say in the press release for this album. I considered the material to be an important and critical part of my development as a writer, but also as a condensation of some of the more esoteric ideas I've been following in recent years. So there's the kind of continuity part, particularly since the recent incarnation of Amoebics and the consequent result that has become Tau Cross. My interest in Gnostic cosmology, occult magic traditions, magic with a K, and the links with the UFO and folktale phenomena have led to a kind of synthesis and a connection of dots that sees its full scope and import in this most recent work. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the first track, Yaldaboth. 
So this is an artistic take on the the great and fertile Sophia myth, um, yes. which we we see in many an artistic creation. This stuff, it's an interesting kind of dark twin to the Western esoteric traditions because until the the Nag Hammadi texts were found, um, so it really until the 70s when that material was really edited and came out into the public sphere, this stuff was lost. So the only account we had of the Sophia myth was from heresiologists like Irenaeus who were who are just basically summarizing it and saying, and this is why it's rubbish and this is why it's not orthodox. And now we have it again. And of course, artists have latched onto it. We've interviewed um, a painter, Lawrence Caruana, who's just an, a Gnostic visionary um, sort of icon painter, you know, based on, mm-hmm. on this story. What's your take on this myth? How do you, how do you read it? What does it mean to you? Well, as I said, the caveat on this is, is I'm not an academic. Um, and the, the way that I came across this was primarily through the work of John Lamb Lash. And he, he did a book called, um, he wrote a book called Not In His Image, which sort of introduced this as an, as an idea to me, first of all. And then I started to follow him um, on, his, on his podcasts and some of his talks and some of, he's kind of like set up um, his own sort of school at the moment as well. Uh, and, and, I, and I got in touch with him. Um, went down to see him, but unfortunately he was away visiting a friend at that point. He's in, in, in northern Spain. But um, I was excited by this when, when I initially came across it because it seems like something which is, 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 uh, which is a whole. It's a mythological view which um, encapsulates everything that you need to know. There's no, there's no sort of leaks in there at all. It's like it's a creation myth which is so completely different to the one that we're, we're fed through co- the conventional um, uh, Abrahamic religions that you can understand why, as you as heresiologists, how, how they consider these people to be heretics because it put everything outside of the realm of the church and the, the arrogation of the priesthood and all this kind of stuff. It seemed to me to be more toward the, the, the more paganistic view of that. And it seems like you can kind of tie in with the, uh, the Library of Alexandria and all this kind of stuff, that sort of time when there seems to have been a, um, a concerted effort to wipe out any um, other narrative once the, the rise of the big three religions, well, the, the, big, the big two at that time was well underway. Yeah, well, from, from the perspective of the Christians, I think it was the big one, the, the mm-hmm. sorts of people who burnt the Library of Alexandria. It was like um, yes. this, this late antique, there is only one truth. And you know, there's the Jews, of course, but they they either get on the train or get left behind because we, we recognize that we kind of get stuff from them, but they're not, you know, they're if they're they're either yeah. with Christ or they're or they're out. Sure. Yeah. Um, so in in scholarship, there's there's a number of approaches to this this myth, and one one has been to look at a so-called pre-Christian Sophia myth. The idea being that this this story of cosmic fall and and sort of redemption via a savior who's sent down from the Pleroma. It has some kind of origin. People have looked for it in, in Zoroastrianism. They've looked for it here and there, but really we don't find it in the text. So it's kind of a, you kind of got to make something up. Um, mm. But what happens when, when that myth kind of collides with Christianity is this new form, the Christian Gnosticism is, it comes about. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, not Orthodox Christianity, obviously. But I suppose this this is where um, uh, where Lash kind of leaves off because he doesn't go into into that that sort of messianic prospect of it at all. He's more interested in the in the idea that um, 
but Sophia becomes embodied as a conscious living being, which is a planet, and that the consequences of her projection, her willful projection or fall, as some people might like to see it, is is to be asleep and to be unconscious, and that she she will begin to wake up at mm. some point and then be able to regard what's been going on on the surface of this planet and being able to see the influence that they that that has been um, brought about through the unbridled reign of Yaldabaoth or you know the the demiurge or if we like to use the word god of the of the old testament um that has complete dominion over this corner of the universe it's almost as though it's a screen between us and the center of the, of the paroma which which doesn't doesn't interact with us at all mm. yeah so this is why you get in some tellings of uh, in some of the gnostic sources you have the christ figure the redeemer figure who who basically comes from the pleroma as a kind of um probe from outside to tell humanity about this myth so that they can mm awaken the divine spark within themselves and get out and escape from the archons, from the, the reign of this uh, idiot demiurge figure. But there's all different tellings of, this, of the story. So thank you for adding one telling to, of this myth. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it takes so many different forms. In, in the Valentinian version of it, there's a, there's a completely different reason why, the, you know, the, the idea that something happens to Sophia and then events occur isn't always depicted as a fall. It's sometimes depicted as she um, just wanted to imitate the creative power of her father, which had been going on and had already created this complex pleroma before she even came about. And so she then added more to the creation, you know, and that, and it's, a, sure. it's an okay thing. You can understand that. I mean, I mean if you, you know, I, I tried to break it down so it's, it's out of the sort of religious, mythical sphere of names and all that kind of stuff. And if you can regard it slightly more scientifically and this idea about an ejection of plasma from the center of the, of the cosmos outwards which would have its resulting um, form uh, con condensing. And perhaps, you know, uh, it's this whole, th it's the whole thing about consciousness is, the, is what it hinge hinges on. And the, the Gnostic myth, from what I gather, is about the projection of consciousness into this corner of the universe. And the, uh, the result of having done that without authority. So it's like a, a, very, a very willful matter. So a... Um, a female or, an, uh, or you know, negative or positive, or however you like to call it, energetic, pushes itself into this corner of the universe without having its polarity uh, correct. And the, the, the scientific result of that is a, an experiment that goes slightly awry. And we're kind of living within that experiment and under, under the power of it as well, perhaps. Mm. Track two, we get into some wonderful modern folklore, hollow earth. <laughs> so... We were on a journey. We came, we were over Antarctica and then we entered into the hollow earth. And mm -hmm. this is where you find Agartha and many another kind of um, hidden city of the, of the wise masters. What were you reading that gave you the material for this? Uh, you know, stuff about um, Admiral Byrd. You've read about Byrd's voyage, I take it, you know, to, but both of them, the, the one to the, um, to the Arctic, first of all, where his son was supposed to have unearthed his diaries, whereby he comes across this, this clear sort of plain and there are, there are creatures down there and lands and has interaction. It sounds like something from H.G. Wells. So I kind of disregard that as just being so fantastically fanciful that it can't possibly be true. But then you get the real life account of him taking... Um, Operation High Jump 
just after the war's end and taking over over 6,000 troops on, on uh, aircraft carriers with planes and backup military weapons, all the rest of it, down to Antarctica, where they are repelled by a, uh, by a force of, of um, aircraft, which they haven't seen before. Now, because it was... Um, it was translated through a uh, through a, a Spanish-speaking magazine at the time. This article, people are saying maybe there's some some differences in interpretation. But they came scuttling back, and we know that he went on there. It's all, you know, there's photographs from the from the expedition. So that did happen, and we know that there's Neuschwabenland, which was set up by the Germans before the war, and which they'd been equipping, particularly using underground channels with with submarines and all the rest. We don't know whether they continued to do so throughout the war, but. Everything seems to always point back toward Antarctica, even these days where you had Senator Kerry disappearing there the night of the Trump election when he won kind of thing or the day before. He disappears off down there. It's like abrogating his responsibilities in the States. What the hell is he doing down there? What is going on in Antarctica? Why can't we go down there as an individual and look at the place? You can't. You can't get anywhere close to it at all. Hmm. The, the thought in some um, circles is that at either pole, there are indentations and entrances into an underground world. So I like that. Um, you never seem to see them in satellite photos, though, do you? You don't, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, that's NASA covering it up, man. Of course, yeah, NASA's always, <laughs> always on the conspiracy tip. Yeah. Um, did you ever read uh, At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft? No, I didn't. All right, I'm going to turn you on to that. That's that's some great mm-hmm. Antarctic scariness. Yeah, I just I just like the idea that I mean the, this whole thing about like the uh, the Ananerb Society, the 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 Vril Society, and people like that, and um, before the war in Germany, who were very serious about trying to um, open up some of these ideas about uh, the connections with the inner Earth, and they would send up yearly, every, annually, up until 1938 they'd have a, an expedition from the 20s onwards going out to Tibet and meeting up with the Lamas out there and having discussions. And they were uniquely allowed access to, to Lhasa, I believe, and, um, and talked with people who knew, who knew about this connection between the, the Tibetan priesthood and the Shambhala people too. Mm. So it's, it's intriguing. I, I kind of like that. The, 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 there may be mysteries left in this world still. Mm. All right. Burn with me, track three. I hate to ask such a kind of blatant question but but what exactly is this song about if it's a if it is about something in that kind of straightforward way it's a it's a shredding thrash styly number on the musical Mm -hmm. side of things what's it about it's just about the imposition of uh the new religion uh into the british isles yeah that's and really and just basically looking over that from the heretical point of view and saying you know we were we were invaded by something that doesn't belong to us um and it's taken away a lot of the roots of our, our culture and uh, who we are as people. Christianity. Christianity, yeah, yeah. In this instance, Christianity. So Burn With Me is like the the defiant Celt or whatever saying, you know, we're going to die, but yeah. but we're going to be immortal in some way. Well, the, of course, the thing about that is um, that was the song that was released on the eve of the controversy that uh, saw me lose my label and my band, my back catalogue and everything that went down with it. Um, and I considered it particularly poignant because of this, this talking about, you know, if you, if you, challenge, the, um, if you challenge the narrative in, in any of these things in the religious sphere. And I see, I see a lot of the things that we deal with these days as being religions rather than being historical 
items. Um, if you challenge that, then uh, you are you are a heretic. You're deemed a heretic. You will be burned. And my defiance about that is saying that um, it doesn't matter. Go into the, that flame. And it's the purifying flame of the alchemist as well. It's to say that anything that's true will not will not be burned away. And we don't have anything to fear. And it, it returns to the end of um, the Knights of the Black Sun from Amoebics, which is you were always free. Mm. You know, these these things that we get, we, are, we are embodied in a, in, in this flesh and we are subject to pain and that's the thing that always checks us against doing anything at all it's pain it's psychological pain or it's physical pain or it's the more obscure pains of of being rejected perhaps you know not uh, and thrown outside the clown and stuff like that but you know i've done my journey and i don't care uh, and i think it's essential for the individual or the outsider to go through the flame and that's the flame I'm talking about in that regard. And the song thrashes, man. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a killer. It's, it's a typical Miller does bloody motorhead thing again. But well, uh, Speaking on that motorhead theme, the next track, Black Cadillac, is, is also, it's like a rock and roll number, you know. Mm-hmm. But, and are, is this sort of MIBs in this song? Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, what I want... With Black Cadillac, I kind of wanted to push it toward a sort of almost like surf rock vibe, you know? Um, So there's a little bit of that sort of jangly guitar in the background that you can hear too. So it's almost like, it's like an imposition on the album because in some ways it doesn't quite fit, but it's essential to the narrative as well. So I had to put it in that sort of slightly cheesy 50s frame of little bits and pieces too. But the story itself is obviously very, very serious because, you know, I, I take these things serious where, you know, people might go on about, the whole kidnapping um, scenario, you know, um, which has gone on throughout the ages. So we're talking about, noises. and we're not talking about kidnapping. We're talking about kidnapping by entities that, you know, we're talking about UFO, lost time, that whole yeah. kind of thing, getting taken by the yeah. fairies, kind of kidnapping. Exactly. That's 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 how it correlates. It's all about taken taken by the fairies. It's uh, loss of time. It's also what is often overlooked uh, because we have this romantic view of the fairies now, but they weren't a laughing matter to, no. to your, your, your farmer or anybody in late medieval period, not until fairly recently too, you know, and they're taken quite seriously because they do damage. Uh, and some people don't come back. Uh, you never see them again. There's, there's people that do go missing. Mm. People can have experiences that alienate them after that from everybody else. Generally speaking, that seems to be the, the whole course is that, um, somebody can believe that they've been given some kind of prophetic insight and then they turn out to be to be made a mockery of at the end of their days so that's this what this is why i'm leading up toward the the whole idea of the messengers of deception because mm. they whoever they are and whatever they are they always seem to have as their central theme either either mischievousness if we like it at a, at a low level or great deception uh, misleading and uh, calamitous results at, at, at another level altogether all right before we get to Messengers of Deception, we have a track on this album, Violence of the Lord. Mm. And this is some pretty staunch critique of the whole kind of holy war mentality, I guess. And I guess kind of priestcraft and the mobilization of populations in warfare based on religious ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Another stonker uh, with some shredding. As well, or is it? 
Is that de- messengers of deception? I've written it down. Anyway, uh, both, both of those have. So yeah, yeah there's, a, there's there's a big there's big uh, double bass on the uh, mm. uh, big double bass kicking on the uh, violence of the Lord. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, um, and then messengers of deception. Now this is a, a track to warm the heart of anyone who's who loves their modern esoteric history, right? Because we have Kelly, we have Parsons. You can kind of fill in the blanks and insert Alistair Crowley there in the middle if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're talking about these mages making contact with these um, entities on the other side, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and basically opening a door that shouldn't be opened and the entities come through. What, what's your reading of all this? Because when, when I check this out, as, you know, sort of from a historian standpoint, I think, well, hang on a minute. The, what's the connection between Enochian angels that John Dee and Edward Kelly are talking to? And mm-hmm. um, whatever the heck Parsons is doing out in the desert in the 1950s or, you know. Mm-hmm. How, do, how does this all be- connect to you? Well, it would be the Western um, esoteric magical tradition using basically Kabbalah and also the recognition that um, uh, the Enochian as a working language in principle is used in a lot of dark magic groups to this very day. You know, it is it's still a working language and it's still used for the same purpose, which is the invocation and uh, not subjugation, but to, to be able to harness particular forces, too. So it was fascinating because. Of, you know, people talk about um, Kelly as being um, a charlatan, somebody that basically um, took D for all that he was worth. But the the fact that he created um, a, a self reasoning alphabet, if you like, which has correspondences which are beyond uh, it's just beyond the ability of one man to to be to be able to have constructed himself. It's like a computer program altogether. Um, so so something to him which I think that he was definitely a seer. And I think that he was in contact with these entities who did allow him to dis- discover, disseminate that language with the help of D, and um, thereby instructed the practicing magician how to interact with, with them. Because like John Keel maintains in, in his Eighth Tower, there's a, a, a spectrum of vibratory frequency that obviously we're stuck right at the low end of that in that we can barely see or hear properly at all even our cats and dogs are better than us but outside of that are very likely to be other other forces that we can't um that we can't understand and that we can't interact with unless they are invited into our sphere and they never seem to be here for very long so in the, in the tradition of the musician they are bound within the circle and they're, they're there for doing a particular job within a, a particular time span or whatever and within the UFO tradition, you often have this idea about people like the men in black thing coming in and not being able to breathe properly. They can't, they can't assimilate to the atmosphere properly. They, they can't digest food in the normal way and all this kind of stuff. And they're not there for very long. They've only got a very limited window in which to operate. It seems that these are exactly the same as, as, the, um, as the entities contacted through a cult work. And what really um, cemented that for me was reading back into the work of uh, practicing magical groups and the, the fact, which slammed me right in the face, that they have um, had problem with the men in black too. It's the same thing. That appears within magical workings as, as in exactly the same manner as it appears within UFO phenomena. The men in black. Three men appear dressed up like this, you know, old fedoras and all the rest of it, and they come with the warning. 
it's, uh, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. And, and they, those men in black themselves, they seem like the so-called alien grey. I don't subscribe to the alien thing at all, as you probably know, but they seem like the greys in that they're not, um, they're not sentient entirely. They are messengers doing a job. They're just, they're just doing a job description, so they get confused. If they, if they give, give somebody a knock on the house and say, you need to not say anything to anybody about what you've just seen, and you turn around and say, no, nah, fuck you, mate. And there's nothing they can do about that. They haven't got any power. They're just like a, they're like a, a glitch in the, in the program that as soon as you interact with these forces, you actually you press a switch whereby these things are, are acted. They're acting out too. So they're just doing their job. Hmm. And how are they messengers of deception? Because in every single case that I know of, of the promise of the Messiah to come or the, the spaceships and the great invasion and the, the space brothers and the Venusians and all this kind of stuff, they fill the, um, the contactee with very good information, um, including in some instances glimpses into the future. So they give them the powers of prophecy and prediction and allow them to be able to say this will happen and that will happen and all the rest of it. And they always go along the same trajectory in that they will, they will make something very concrete, which people can, they can circulate around and they can start to form a cult around that, a club of people that are in the know. It's the same as the magical operating system as well. Uh, people that are, uh, they, they, know, they know the great secrets of the universe and all the rest of it. And they, they will allow them to go along to a certain degree um, right to the, the, the point of, of where they're supposed to be making this great contact and the, you know, the Space Brothers will be arriving and they'll be talking to the very president himself and stuff like that. They'll have him, they'll have him sitting up naked on a hilltop waiting for them and they never arrive. And the psychological backlash of that on the people that have been involved is, is great trauma, you know? You get people losing their lives, taking their lives over it. You get people who, whose entire life has been put into, into question and their entire outlook upon something that was supposed to have been magical and mystical has just been torn out from underneath them. They've always got this propensity for deception. The fairy folk did this. You were never allowed to return from the, from, uh, the fairy place. You couldn't, you couldn't eat there to start with. You are never allowed to return with anything. You try and steal away some gold and it might turn to coal by the time you got home or whatever, stuff like that. There's always this thing where they're in control. They are very much in control. And that's the opposite, if you like, about the principle of magic, whereby you're supposed to have some ability to harness the energy for your own uses, and then you dissolve it and send it back where it comes from. So, yeah, it's um, the same thing. I'm sorry, I'm a waffle on a little bit, but we, you know, we look at look at Dee and Kelly and how far they got down into very, very serious work. Dee himself was a cryptographer, and also he was a cartographer too. So he's he was making maps. He was the he was instrumental in actually the creation of the British Empire as an idea. Mm-hmm. He was the original, the original 007. That was his secret name given by the by the Queen, Queen Elizabeth. He was an incredibly, incredibly well balanced man of the times. But he was he was deceived. At the end of the day, he was deceived because he started going down this. He should have just stayed to making codes, being interested in some of these things, and, and working for, for working for the boss as, as such. But um, instead, he got deceived into eventually um, degrading himself and his household to such an extent that it it completely fragmented him, all of it, all of his relationships and everything that he'd done. 
So you know this this thing about him and him and um, and Kelly having to swap wives with one another because they go down this increasingly ludicrous and absurd path of messages from these angelic creatures who are no longer angelic they take the form of a little girl or this and that and the rest of it too so they they start to break down it's like the program is beginning to break down and they end up in this ridiculous scenario in order to be able to advance any further you must take one another's wives and it's like well that, that's done it you know that, that broke everything it broke the trust between them it broke um broke, broke Dee's love with his wife too because she apparently was absolutely besotted by him and they they loved one another but that did that did the men yeah that can't can't be easy on the ladies. Mm. You see this a lot in uh, small cults, where um, everything's going along swimmingly, and then suddenly the leader announces, "I have a special dispensation of God," and it basically involves me shagging all the young women of our. <laughs> you know, <laughs> strange, strange that it always seems to be the same. Some yeah. variation on that, or yes, you we must yeah. have spiritual wives, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's because you know, because as we know, I mean, the whole of the. The whole of the empowerment of of these groups is is sexual energy anyway, and it always has been. This is yeah. this is one take on things for sure. Let's talk about Babylonian Death Cult, the next track. Oh, so you've got yeah. some two really heavy tracks in the middle of this album, or yeah, sort of the middle: Messengers of Deception and Babylonian Death Cult. Mm-hmm. This song references the Book of the Law, Enochian codes again on the D theme, ciphers, mm-hmm. and the theme of the Black Sun which occurs in, in a lot of your work, actually. What can you tell us about this song? This is, um, this is unusual in that this is a song I wrote after uh, all that stuff went down. So this is a brand new song. It's, right. it's written by me without, without any interpretation by anybody else. And I just wrote this thing which sounded to me like everything I loved about Sabbath from the 70s. Uh, very, very primitive riff um, and good punch to it. And I like this idea of the interplay of the, of the vocal textures. So you have, you have one hard vocal and then you have a, a, a sung piece immediately after that. So there's two different vocal sides to this, which is going to make it a challenge to do live for a start. There won't be many, much room to breathe in between the sentences, but um, I think it works well. The push with this was my, my idea that um, the, the Talmudic version of the law coming back with the um, Levitical priesthood had been tarnished through their um, encounters with the Babylonian, Mesopotamian sort of Baal-worshipping traditions. And I th- I think, and you, and again, this is why I'm having the conversations, is because I like to know if I'm wrong with this, but I, <laughs> I, think, that there's a, I think there was invitation um, at that point for them to get involved in dark magic. And I think what, what they brought back into the... Uh, to, to a people that had until that point been content with the Torah, which seemed to make a lot of sense. <laughs> um, they brought back this kind of like the exact opposite in some ways and encouraged people to have this very sort of like um, inward looking tribal existence, which was entirely hostile to anybody outside. So I'm blaming the priesthood for having given people a very, very rough rough ride and for having installed at the very heart of it uh black magic mm. and that black magic itself um we can see today uh, enacted through through its uh, through its agents in uh, in hollywood or other areas of the media well i'm not even going to touch that but let me uh ask you in the in the <laughs> um <laughs> that's all right let me ask you what this has to do with the book of the law 
course, by Aleister Crowley or by his it's, it's, guardian yeah, it's, daimon or whatever, and the Enochian codes. It's me putting up the um, putting up the idea about the interaction with other forces because, as we know, um, uh, Crowley interacted with this entity called Lam, um, who looks suspiciously like people's drawings of a of a, of an alien from yeah. back in 19, 1913 or fourteen or whatever it was. So it's particular that he had dealings with with ultra-terrestrial or extraterrestrial, whatever you like to see it, um, which may or may not have been part of his imagination. But that, that seems a moot point, really, because when you consider, again, he produced something which seems so far out of the realm of the person himself. Yeah, so there's that, and there's, there's again, the reference to Enochian code. So it's basically people being used to convey a new language. And uh, I would say that Babylonian death cult is, is talking about Kabbalah hmm. in the same sense. And what is your take on the Kabbalah? Because, you know, it's a very complex tradition and it's a very, very fascinating yeah. tradition at the heart of Judaism. But do you, do you see it as a magical thing? It's, it's a lot of things, isn't it? Hmm. I mean, as, as, um, as, as, an, as a non-Jew, as a, as a goy, I don't understand it. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have looked into it. But, uh, you know, if you, if you say to any Jewish person, you know, I've, I've studied a bit of Kabbalah, they'll laugh at you. Yeah. Because you don't, you don't, you don't study it, not not as a Gentile, not properly. Um, but you might study a particular aspect of it, which, you know, as I say, my my interest would be on the magical side of that. Now, we know it's a fully intact tradition that, that does work and can, can reference back to itself. So it can be used for a variety of things. Um, it can be used, again, like as, as a code, if you like. Uh, it could be used for, for magical purposes. It's the it's the base, really, isn't it, of, of Western occult tradition, really, for in working groups. I mean, they're using Kabbalah, and they have been. So, so what's that doing so deeply embedded within um, the you know, in European tradition, even? Why 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 have we all been um, subsumed by by this um, Middle East sort of cultism? Okay, well, a, it's there, isn't it? A historian might say, but Kabbalah is. A European tradition, like we don't, although their story is, of course, it goes back to Moses. It's the the oral Torah that was revealed to Moses alongside the bit that's written down, and it's been transmitted all the way through from there. But if you yeah, wanna, and the Lurian Kabbalah comes later, so Lurian, yeah. yeah. But but if you want to read yeah. the leading historians on Kabbalah, they're all going to agree that it shows up in Spain and southern France in the later Middle Ages, and that's when the Zohar appears and and these key texts. Yeah. So it is. It is a European tradition, full stop. Well, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's that it emerged into the into the more public sphere, certainly in the 13th, 14th century, when you had that great dialogue between you know, the Moors and the Christians and the Jews in, mm. in, in Spain, of course. But it, it, the, it's always been a, a, the secret mystical tradition. It's when it starts to interact with the Gentile world. It's a different thing altogether. It's like, well, that's when you start to get you start to get the magical tradition because they, they're realizing that here's something that actually does work. Hmm. Interesting. You can certainly look at Greek magical papyri from antiquity, which is, you know, second, third, fourth centuries CE. And there's tons and tons of sort of pseudo-Jewish and actual Jewish and quasi-actual Jewish material in that stuff because the Jews at the oh, time had a okay. had a, a reputation for being magical people basically there's this kind of stereotype yeah. one one of the many stereotypes about Jews in antiquity one of them is that if you need a bit of divination done or you need a a, a protective spell or a love spell or whatever go to the local Jew or Jewish lady and they can sort you out so you get all this kind okay. of 
Um, yeah, yeah. Proto, what well, you might call it, proto-occult, I suppose, but um, definitely some mm-hmm. Hebrew, quasi-Hebrew names repurposed for spells that we don't think came from a Jewish context, for example. You get that a lot in antiquity. I suppose one point as well to, to be able to draw a parallel between that and things like, um, I suppose in the in the in the north we had the runic alphabet too, mm-hmm. and you had more obscure things like Ochem from the Celts, where these letters themselves again would be representational of ideas, so they wouldn't just exist as as bits of vocabulary. They would they would have a whole meaning to them, which would have a um, which ha- which which would have a deeper relevance to a person that understood that. With, with Kabbalah, it's much, much more complex in that you've got the, the notaricon and you've got the gematria and all this kind of stuff as extensions of these these permutations of stuff, as well as the ability to be able to seed entire text with um, secret information, which can only be revealed through a particular lens. When that that is the lens that it's done, you know, we could say that at some point we had that kind of thing with um, with the runic tradition here, but maybe not not on, on an operating level in the same way as, as Jewish Kabbalah. Okie doke. Drowning the God. What is drowning mm. the God? And what's erasing the beast? We are the beast. Mm. Um, it's this idea about, you know, that the, the whole thing about us gradually losing our identity through information technology and through our, our forced interaction with all of this stuff. Uh, we, we're starting to lose our relationship with the natural world and that's that's that concerns me a lot you know particularly at the moment where where we we're in the middle of this this covid um whatever you want to call it whereby we're, we're being separated from one another from our normal modes of existence but also from our relationship with nature in some ways too and i see that as being a critical part of the um demoralizing process by which, as human beings, we can be subjugated, and we can be made less than what we should be. It's, it's like the opposite of our our aspirational selves is this diabolic inversion, and I think that's that's what it is. Well, the album ends on a sad note, but perhaps slightly less dark note. You've got the song Three Tides," um, which is folk music, basically. I mean, I guess you can argue that. Punk rock is folk music in a way, um, in, in the sense that it's untutored people just playing instruments and making music. But um, I like that. <laughs> well, if, I mean, it is like, like grime is folk yeah. music, you know. Um, yeah, I like that. But you've got fiddle, right? So, okay, no, it's really folk music. It's got some fiddle playing on it. Um, but you've got mm. some shredding, some guitar shredding too. And then there's like a lovely string section at the end. Is, what's this mm-hmm. song referencing? Is this like a. Well, tell me. Some witches. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This, so this is my fanciful kind of like, um, uh, this is my atmosphere song at the end. It's kind of like Hangman, Hangman's Hill, really. And a lot of these songs come about through a very, very simple phrase that I might read in a book somewhere. And the, the phrase from this was from a book called A Pirate of Exquisite Mind, William Dampier. So William Dampier was a, um, he wrote like the second a great novel, really, after Robinson Crusoe. Um, and, and it was done through his inadvertent voyage around the world. He didn't mean to go around the world, but his circumna- circumnavigation of the globe by mistake through um, basically get, getting into bad company several times, including pirates and all the rest of that. And uh, it's a, an absolutely brilliant book. And I would recommend it to anybody. It's exciting and it's, you know, it's, it's, it brings up all of these sort of traditions and weird sort of anomalies from the time. And one of these 
which which started this entire song was that the practice of um taking uh, the the the, pro the pirates or the prisoners or the privateers or whatever if they hadn't been working for the queen and they got caught um they would they would be taken into the thames and they would be shackled up on a post down by the river and they would have three tides would have to wash over them uh, before they were taken and um, taken to the court and, and sentenced and whatever it hung or stuck in chains or whatever it was. But this this beautiful image of three tides. So I started that as a beginning of a song. And it's just this person tied to the to the mud and a, and a post in, in the river in the dawn, realizing that the the woman he's been working with, as she's a, of course known as a sea witch, uh, because the both of them together, him being a pirate and her being a witch, and um, they've they've been. Um, conspiring to, uh, to to sink ships both for for booty but also for uh, for magical purposes so anyway so it's 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 fantastical but it's a story it's a modern day folk story if you like uh, and i like that and uh, it's his thoughts before being sent to the pyre and uh, you know his um obviously his his fondness for for his woman too so it's romantic <laughs> mm. and the last track on the album sorrow draws the plow this is my favorite song on the album actually I have to say somehow. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Quiet, piano led, no crunchy guitars, lots of strings, and it just seems to be a kind of sad reflection on the seasons with um yeah. with spring but waiting in the wings. It's not it's not all doom and gloom, but uh mm -hmm. the passing of things. Yeah. It was. Um, this is a summary. That that song has got. There's no um, artificial instrument there at all. It's all. There's, there's a baran, which is the drum there. And, you know, there's, there's cello, violin, piano, two different pianos, and voice, and that's it. Um, oh, and Nickel Harper. Ah, oh, is that it's, a Nickel Harper? That too. There's, yeah, so yeah. That, there's ah, a, there's so a, that's natural. A section just toward the end. Yeah, yeah. So all of these things, there's no there's no affectation there at all, and I wanted to be able to return to that, to the land of my youth in Devon, and the reflection that I can find anywhere within this land here. It's like I've always had this very very intimate connection with earth, land, feeling, and it's like history itself seems to kind of like seep up through the ground, and sometimes that's a been an odd and uncomfortable experience and I used to get panic attacks about that kind of stuff but generally speaking this ability to be able to tune in to place and I find that particularly in the British Isles I don't find it so much in other places yeah to a degree but so there's something here special about that and that was something I was trying to convey in a very 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 simple manner in that song and this the nature of as you say the change between the seasons and the promise of spring is to say, like, despite all of these things, which, you know, we might have gone through a fairly dark path through this album, <laughs> cosmologically and all the rest of it, the truth remains that nature is here. And nature is something we can always reflect on. And in the times that are most difficult, you know, my, my times over the last year or so, when it was just myself and my wife, and we were kind of like staring bleakly out the windows, what, what, wondering what calamity would come around next, thinking the only thing that you could do was actually just put on some boots and go outside and have a walk around the garden or walk down to the sea and observe and observe nature because nature doesn't have, there's no malice there at all. There's none of the um, human qualities that make us bad as we are, you know, or make us incorrect or make us just mistaken or stupid, ignorant. 
Nature just does what it does. Even my cat, you'd be outside, you'd be killing a mouse. And it's, he might like the idea of the mouse jumping around because it's something that's alive. You know, he's not being cruel. He's just saying, here's something I'm, I'm, I'm playing with now. And then I kill it. And that's the, you know, nature doesn't have that. It doesn't have this human quality that, um, that we suffer under. And that's, this is the, uh, it's a penalty we pay for consciousness. It's this idea about shades and about, you know, this versus that right wrong good evil so you know we're we're stuck in that and meanwhile this earth gaia sophia marches on mm. rob miller thanks for talking to us about the next tall cross album and stay esoteric <laughs> thanks very much earl it's a lovely speaking to you and uh, enjoy the music <laughs>